Uh, we have been talking about covenant over the last couple of weeks. And though I'm not going to dig deep into covenant like I did last week, we are still talking covenant today. There is um, a covenant that was made with Isaiah. Um, there are things that we learn from Isaiah. And as um, was read earlier today, there is a particular verse in Isaiah that we read this time of year. And I want to take a little bit of time to talk about Isaiah 7 and to give some perspective on that. For that is a passage that talks about God with us. Around the year 720 BC before Christ, God's people were a divided nation. We have the northern kingdom, which is known as the northern kingdom of Israel for that time frame. And king at that time is King Pekah. The southern kingdom is known as, you know this, southern kingdom is Judah, right? Judah at the time has a king. His name is Ahaz. And there are tribal wars that are going on between the northern and the southern kingdom. You think the Mason-Dixon was an issue? It was worse back then. Also, there is something that is looming out there that is waiting to come. It is the... Assyrians. They are on the edge, an empire to the north, and are starting to come south. Tiglath Pileser III, a name that you might remember from history, is king and he is bullying the whole region and eventually he will take over. The problem with the Assyrians is that they are a cruel lot. They are domineering and vicious. So there is total unrest going on in that region and we have this other up-and-coming empire that's taken advantage of the the division that is within the promised land. And Isaiah 7, as you come into that you're coming to what would be called, what we would call today a watershed moment. It's a, it's a put up or shut up kind of a, of a time. And history hangs in the balance. Now the northern kingdom of Israel has gotten with Syria, different country, not Assyria, Syria. Syria And the northern kingdom of Israel form what's known as the Syro-Ephraimite alliance. And the reason why the northern kingdom allied with the Syrians, who are typically enemies as well. But what's, what's the phrase you hear every now and again? The enemy of my enemy is my friend, regardless of if they're really or not. By the way, history proves that that usually doesn't work out well. 
But they have formed this Syro-Ephraimite alliance because they're going to invade Judah, the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom needs to know that God is with them. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and flip to um, uh, Isaiah 7. We're going to read a piece of this. I'm not going to read every verse, but we are going to read a little piece of this because we need to get some context as to what's going on here. Uh, You'll note that when you get down to Isaiah 7 2, it says that those in Judah were shaking like leaves on a tree. And prophet Isaiah goes to Ahaz to deliver a word from God. And at verse 4, he in essence says, you may be shaking like a leaf, but to God, those people coming in are nothing but firewood. And you don't need to be afraid. Let's pick up there in verse 5. Aram... That would be Syria. And Ephraim, that would be the northern kingdom of Israel. And Remaliah's son, that would be Pekah, the king. Aram, Ephraim, and Remaliah's son have plotted your ruin, saying, let's invade Judah, let's tear it apart, let's divide it among ourselves and make son of Tabeel king over it. But the Lord says, it will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus. That's the capital city of Syria at the time. The head of Damascus is only Rezin, who was king. Within 65 years, Ephraim, northern kingdom, will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, capital city at the time. And the head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son, Pekah. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. And again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Asked the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest depths. Heights. Now you hear what Isaiah's message is, right? Isaiah's message is stand firm in your faith. Because if you don't rely on God, it's not going to go well. Despite what you see going on around you, Ahaz, the most important thing is to put your trust where? Put your trust in God. Yes. By the way, is that pretty good advice? Would that be advice that we could use today? Do we need to be reminded of that? Say amen. Amen. Yeah. Also, the Lord offers to give Ahaz a confirming sign. In fact, what he says is, test me in this. You ever heard that phrase before? Test me in this. Where does that come up in Scripture? It comes up in the Old Testament, towards the end. One of the the minor prophets. Malachi. Malachi. 
Yes, Malachi 3, verse 6. Now, normally when we look at that, we think, oh, he's talking about tithing. That's about tithing. And we got to make sure we're bringing all the stores into the storehouse. And God offers the people at that point in time in Malachi's day for them to test God and see if God will be faithful. Do you realize that when God says, test me in this, see if I'll be faithful, and you refuse to do what he is offering you to do, that that is tantamount to sin? That that's tantamount to disobedience? But if you read Malachi 3.6 in context you really begin to see it's not about the tithing. It's about what? It's about the heart. It's about what's going on within the people. You see, the heart that refuses to give God his due reflects that in the outward action of the individual. Ahaz has that kind of a heart. He he responds, he says, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. Now at first blush, that sounds really pious, right? Oh, God's up there and and I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to, no, 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 I'm just going to trust, right? I I don't have to test you, Lord. Um, But that's not what Ahaz is saying. You remember the Assyrians I was talking about, that large up-and-coming power that's on the edge of coming down and through the Holy Land? Ahaz has made an alliance with the Assyrians because he knows the northern kingdom has made an alliance with the Syrians. So it's here where the northern kingdom gets a big bully and Ahaz gets a bigger bully. You following me? You know what the problem with that is? Bullies take over. This is not going to end well. What Ahaz is really saying is, I can make it without God. I don't need him. Friend, do you know anybody who has ever ever said this? That I can make it without God? You know anyone who has walked away who thinks that they are good enough? Have you ever had that thought? Ahaz is a ruler and a military strategist with a bad moral compass. His father and his grandfather were righteous, but it is said of Ahaz that he did evil in the sight of God. In fact, he desecrated the temple. He practiced child sacrifice, sacrificing his own children, plural. Instead of trusting God, he makes a pact with the Assyrians 
the enemy. But you know what God does? God decides to go ahead and give them the sign anyway. Look there at verse 7. Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread, northern kingdom and Syria, will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your family a time unlike any other since Ephraim, northern kingdom, broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. Do you hear what he's saying? Okay. There's a sign. There's a baby is going to be born before that baby's weaned. Northern kingdom, Syria, they're going to be dealt with. But because you've made this alliance with Assyria, your life's going to get miserable really quick because they're coming for you too. Ahaz's disobedience foreshadows a bittersweet future and it will eventually lead to his downfall and the Assyrians are coming. Now, what's going on here? If Israel and Syria are going to be crushed within a few years, and the child Isaiah is talking about is going to know right from wrong by the time this happens, when does this child start to learn right from wrong? Think about it. When does a child start to learn right from wrong, really? About what age? Six, maybe. Girls, guys, we take a lot longer. Uh, Seven, eight at the most, yes. They start to understand right from wrong. Okay. And if Syria is going to come along and take over before this child reaches that age of beginning to understand right from wrong, when is this child going to come? Obviously, within the contest, it's going to come when? Within their lifetime, okay? What we have here on the surface, what's happening in the time of Isaiah is a fourth telling. We look at prophecy, we see two things. We see a fourth telling or a foretelling. Two very different things. A foretelling is what can happen when you look and you see what's going on, you see the way the world's happening, you see what's going on, and you get this idea and you understand if this world stays on the trajectory of that it's on, it's easy to predict what the next step and the next step and the next step's going to be. Okay? So that, that is still prophecy, but it's proclamation, Right? It's just like when preachers get up and they say, we've let foreign gods on our soil. 
We continue to put people in positions of power who don't understand or respect God. The morality of our country is waning. And if we stay on this path, what is going to happen? See, I think you can do that yourself if you stop and think about it. A foretelling is a prediction of an unknowable future. What we see most of the time in the Old Testament, we see prophets who are doing forth-telling. And later we see this element of foretelling that's on top of it. But there's two prophecies here, right? There's a second one here in 717. Um, Assyria does invade, actually in about two years, around 722 B.C., wipes out the northern kingdom of Israel, subdues the Syrians, and it all happens within their lifetime. The brutality that Isaiah predicted came forward. And there is a foretelling, a reading of the signs. Now, I know some of you are going, I don't understand what this has to do with Christmas. Eric, what are you talking about? By the way, don't we know that this points to Jesus? Why do we know that? Because Matthew in searching the scriptures and looking for Christ in the Old Testament, as we would call it in the Jewish writings, he sees this. He sees an element here. That's absolutely what he thought, right? We read there in one twenty-two Matthew, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet The virgin shall be with child and he will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. Which means, what? Means God with us. Okay, so I have a question for you. Which is it? Is Isaiah doing a forth telling or is he doing a foretelling? Why not both? I don't know who said it, but somebody said it over here. Very good. Why not both? Why not both? In context, this passage in 714, it is a salvation passage. It is a salvation message from Isaiah to Ahaz. The prophecy is there will be salvation from an imminent invasion from Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel coming in, but it's not permanent protection. The Assyrians are coming. By the way, do you know who comes after them? Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar's king of the the Babylonians, okay. Is that the end of the invasions? Then the Greeks are going to come. And oh my gosh, who's coming after the Greeks are going to come? This world. And when we look at Matthew, what we need to note 
is that Matthew sees God's salvation coming in spite of our sin. Have you ever looked at Isaiah 7 and realized the sin that was there that Ahaz had that God chose to protect anyway? You ever thought about that? Isn't that what happened when Jesus came? That the world was full of sin? That he would be rejected, he would be hung on a cross, and he came anyway. Because you see, God saved Judah because he decided to. Totally dependent on God's grace and mercy. And if you think about it, both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom at that point in time had essentially pagan kings. Oh, they know of God, but they refuse to acknowledge him. And the people of God are under imminent threat. The people need guidance. They need grace. They need hope. And God decides to be a presence among the people. In fact, that theme runs through the Old Testament as well as the New. God desires to be among us. Adam and Eve, Genesis 2, what does it say when they were in the garden? What did God do? God walked with them in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 9.9, God says to Noah, I now establish my covenant with you. And the sign of that covenant with Noah was what? It was the, the rainbow. Genesis 17.7, Abraham, God says to Abraham, I will establish my covenant with you and I will be God to you. Genesis 26, 3, Isaac, God says to Isaac, I will be with you and I will bless you and your descendants. Genesis 28, 15, Jacob, God says to Jacob, I will be with you and I will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land and I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. Genesis 39, 3, Joseph winds up in Egypt. And you know what the writer says? The Lord was with him and caused all that he did to prosper. And Potiphar put him in charge of his household. Exodus 3, 12, Moses is looking at a bush that was on fire but won't burn. And God says to Moses, I will be with you. Joshua 15, Joshua is getting ready to fight the battle of his life. They're fighting for possession of the land of Canaan. And the Lord says to Joshua, 
as I was with Moses, I will be with you and I will never leave and never forsake you. Judges 6.16, Gideon again on the point, on the verge of a battle. The Lord says to Gideon, I will be with you and you will strike down all the many nights together. Psalm 23, verse 4, David. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are what? With me. Psalm 46, 11. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Isaiah 43, 1 and 2. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Jeremiah 1.8, do not be afraid, for I am with you and I will rescue you, says the Lord. Now, do I need to go on? Have I given you enough examples? Is that good enough? Did you write some of those down? Okay. If not, this recording, go on Facebook and you can read them back and you can get them then. Friend, here's the thing. God wants to be with us. That's the whole reason why he came in the flesh. It's the whole reason for Jesus. The angels sang about it, and Matthew recorded it. And you think about the timing of this. When, when Jesus entered our world, human. God's people were under the rule of Herod the Great, an essentially pagan king, who knows of God but refuses to recognize God. They are a conquered people and they are under the mighty yoke of the Roman Empire, the greatest world power at that time. And the people need guidance and grace and hope. Could it be true that God has decided to come among them? In the form of Jesus, the Christ child. Who else but God could open the eyes of the blind? Who else but God can raise a lame man to his feet? Who else but God can cure a leper with a word or some mud? Who else but God could raise a dead Lazarus and Jairus' daughter? Who else but God could feed 5,000 men with a boy's meager lunch? Who else but God could appear right there before them three days after he was dead and buried? Who else could have such a miraculous birth? 
who else could this Jesus be but God with us? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John goes on, and in verse 14 of his first chapter, he says, The Word became flesh and took up residence among us, with us. You see, friends, our whole hope of heaven is rooted in the idea of Emmanuel. And you know what? He chooses us in Christ because he has decided to do that. Yet God saves us when we choose him. And when we enter into his covenant, Willing to give him everything we are because he is giving us everything he is. And he gives us a forgiveness from sin and a hope that goes beyond this world, beyond even death. And as Peter said, there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Friend, God is here. He is among us because he chooses to be here. And he can be with you. Will you recognize his presence by accepting his gift of forgiveness and pardon? By accepting Jesus who died and lives for you. Father God, it is marvelous to have this time of year where we can so easily talk about the grace that you have. When we can see people are charmed, where our whole world is full of expectation. We thank you for the excitement of the season and we know Jesus is the reason for this season. But Father, more than that, we thank you for the fact that you want to be with us. And we praise you and give you glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.